1: Hello, good listeners. This is New Books in Science Fiction, the podcast where writers of science, speculative, and fantasy fiction talk about their new works. This is the Tax on the Vats episode. Today's book takes us into deep space, where rebellion is fomenting, soldiers are born in labs, misfits make the best crews, and, of course, people fall in love. In other words, we're talking space opera today. The Rush's Edge is the debut novel of Ginger Smith, who is joining me now from her home in Georgia. Hello, Ginger. It's really, really nice to have you on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: I'm afraid to ask how things are in Georgia because there have been so many headlines of news for several months yes. from Georgia. And, and I guess all those headlines, and if I want to be as neutral as possible, I would just say, uh, have been kind of controversial.
0: It's been something. I tell you, it's been a really hot mess around here.
1: The good thing about our conversation today is that we don't have to be stuck on earthbound topics. Although, when we talk about science fiction, people sometimes think it's it's a bigger escape from reality than say like an average non-science fiction novel, but the stories do tend to reflect back on human foibles and human issues. And I think that's true with space opera, too. So although we won't talk about Georgia, I think we can talk about some of the issues that touch our lives today. Oh, yeah. You know, I think the Russia's Edge does do that. And some of those issues that jumped out at me were loyalty to authority, really blind loyalty to authority, and of course, the ethics of genetic science, and also the divisions humans have a habit of making among themselves, based on our places of origin. And the character I think that all comes together in is is your character Halvor Cullen or Hal, that's what most people call him. Yeah. When we meet him at the beginning of the book, he's stopping two guys from kidnapping a young woman and he easily bests a much larger opponent who is also more heavily armed. And he not only renders the guy unconscious very quickly, he is super happy about it best thing I've done all week, he says.
0: Right. That's definitely Hal.
1: Can you explain why he's so good at fighting and why he enjoys it so much?
0: Well, um, Hal is, is a VAT soldier, and it, the ACAS, the Coalition of Allied Systems, the Army of the Coalition of Allied Systems, creates VATs to be these tremendous fighters, and they are genetically engineered to be the best. And what that what genetics can't do for them, they're programmed to do. So from the time I guess that how before he was even born they were they were programming him with skills and knowledge that he would need to be a great soldier and so I think that kind of addresses like how he's able to do so great because vats when they're born they go through a rigorous training until they become old enough to go to I guess what you would call kind of a basic training, like an assault troop training, where things are a little more violent and a little more real than, than maybe when they're a little bit younger. But, I mean, they're programmed from before birth to, to do what they do. And I guess that, that's what makes Hal such a great fighter. Now, the reason he enjoys it is probably because of the rush. And the rush is kind of a, a physiological response to threat. And vats get this adrenaline rush, and they like it. And it helps them fight harder than a natural-born person, and it helps them be faster. And they, and they kind of crave it. Once they get out of the military, they look for that. They look for some excitement because, you know, civilian life is not quite as exciting, although hell does seem to find, you know, some ways to get into trouble, of course.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's what's happening at the beginning of the book. It's almost like he's hypnotized once he's he's got his sights on these people who appear to be harming this woman. Right. And his his friend, who's also his former commander and current captain, is trying to, to pull him away. And it's like he can't really break the spell, but he kind of has confidence that whatever happens, Hal's going to come out victorious.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think that's, like I said, due to his training in his genetics, he's just you know, I imagine that soldiers are, are like perfect specimens of soldiers that you would envision. And, yeah, I think a lot of times, I think Ty's probably the, one of the only people that can pull Hal back from the edge. But even even in certain times, it's very hard for him to do that. And when Hal feels like his crew or his friends are threatened, that's when it really kicks in.
1: Yeah, I want to explore that a little bit. But, but before we go on, you know, talking about Hal... And these VAT soldiers, VAT seems to refer to the fact that he's kind of created in a test tube, like in a in an actual VAT, and it also is an acronym for Vanguard Assault Troops. So I like the double meaning there. Right. So he's, he's perfect in some ways as a fighter, but his life has been very narrow. And because he's created in this way, he doesn't have parents, nurturing or otherwise. And there isn't a lot about his childhood, but my sense is that he doesn't really have a, a kind of childhood he, he doesn't have fun diversions and he doesn't get to explore things or have any choice in how he's going to spend his life or explore things he's interested in. So I wondered if you could just spend a little bit more about his upbringing.
0: Oh, sure.
1: And if you had any earth-based parallels in mind?
0: I think for, for Hal, the way the way it works for the um, Vats that the ACAS creates is that they are genetically enhanced as soon as Conception happens, and then they're grown in these exo wombs for about i'm trying to remember if it's two or i think two or three years with growth accelerators so um during that time, while they're in the exo womb at one point they're taken out and implanted with an interface, and the interface is made out of well you'll find i don't want to i don't want to spoil anything, but the interface is um implanted into their brain, and it's used for training them um, before they're even born. So as they're growing in these exo-wombs, they're being trained with everything they need to know, and their growth is also being accelerated. So it doesn't take a long time to take a VAT from conception to the age of about 12 years old. But when they get to the physical age of 12, when they appear to be, they're not really 12 because they're only like, you know, three or four years old when they're born, Um, but when they get to that age, they're born from the exo when they're taken out and then they are tested and placed in their program and trained by soldiers and by, you know, via simulations that are run through their interface at night while they're sleeping, things are reinforced, So yeah, Hal didn't really get a chance to be a kid. They're born and right away they're being put in situations to train them for the field and to train them on the equipment they will use and and things like that and and basic, you know, human knowledge that they need to know about where they live, the edge and the spiral. But they, they don't really get a chance to have those same experiences that humans have. So On one hand, there are these great fighters who have all these abilities, and then on the other hand, they're really, really deprived in a lot of ways. I've actually written a short story that I'm going to try to get published about some of Hal's training as, as a younger VAT at the hands of the ACAS, but I guess Hal's closest thing to a friend would be the other VATs in his batch. And, you know, they train together as kind of a group, but then, of course, the ACAS doesn't really want the VATS to get connections with others. They kind of want to keep that to a minimum. So after training at the first VAT facility that they're at, they are split up when they go into their basic training. So the VATS don't really get the chance to have a family or friends or those kinds of of experiences that we all take for granted. And I think that's one of the things that, he struggles with because he can't relate to people on that level. And he's learning a lot about what it means to be a human being during this story because he doesn't know that. Like he knows the fighting side, but he doesn't understand love. He doesn't understand loyalty until, you know, later in the novel there's a scene where he realizes what that really is. The difference between blind loyalty and the loyalty that people earn by being good people. By being a good commander, you earn the loyalty. And he kind of realizes that, that you can't demand it, that it has to be, you know, it's something that's earned by someone and you give it.
1: Everything you've described is a kind of brainwashing, Yes. almost like child soldiers. I mean, as you're saying, he didn't really have a childhood, so developmentally, he's just like a little kid when he's thrown out into the world and expected to fight and give his life. Right. But the story really is about after his service in the ACAS, and he's moved on from that, as all vats eventually do. They're eventually released after seven years of service. And the cost of their genetics and of their being addicted to the, the rush is that they end up dying young. So they don't have a lot of years left after they leave, but I guess they can spend them as they will. And, and Hal has chosen to spend them with his former commander, Tice and Ty. Right. And, and what you've raised for me is he was programmed to be loyal to his commander. And yet, over the course of the book, we see that Hal has genuine bonds with the crew of the salvage vessel that he's working on and with Ty so programmed loyalty where does that end and genuine affection or not programmed like a voluntary true relationship that you enter of your own volition where does that begin
0: oh that's such a great question I think and, and this is this is again from an unpublished story that that I'm working on to to kind of explore that is, is that The way I have it set up is that Hal kind of gets out of the egg house before Ty does. And Ty makes plans to go and find Hal and invite him to work on the salvage vessel with him. And the reason why is um, during their training, and I think there's a flashback to this in the book, when Hal joins Ty's outfit, he gets in a fight. And he thinks that he's going to get in trouble. You know, he thinks Ty's going to rake him over the coals like all his other officers have done. And Ty doesn't do that. And that kind of gets his attention. He's like, wait a minute, this guy is a little different. And that moment, I think, is when it becomes something other than the program loyalty. But the other part of that is that Ty is very knowledgeable that Hal is programmed to follow orders, to be loyal and I think Ty really wants to work on that to help Hal get over that you know he's very careful about what he says to Hal and wants to make sure that he always gives Hal choices and like you have the choice to do this or not it's not do this because I said so I guess it's like Ty knows what Hal has been trained to do and knows that Hal listens to him more than anyone else and Ty determines that he's not going to take advantage of that, and he's very conscious of that all the time. And when Hal and Vivi, another character in the novel, that that Hal decides he really likes, and you know, and she she kind of decides that she likes him as well. When that happens, Ty kind of warns her to watch out because once Hal feels loyalty towards you, once Hal accepts you, like you. you You could say something, and he'll do what you say. He'll do exactly what you say. And he says, don't take advantage of that. So I think while some of it is programmed, after a while it becomes more than that. I I don't know how realizes that, wait a minute, Ty really cares. This is something I don't really understand But I'll go with, you know, I'll go with it. And so I think the further away that that Hal has gotten from his nightly programming sessions, the more it becomes him and the less it becomes the programming in a lot of ways. Once they get a relationship that's more than just commander and commanded, it becomes a friend relationship or even a brother relationship.
1: Yeah, it's like his humanity surfaces. It's always been there all along, but but you need someone like Ty who understands what's going on to give him room to express himself. Anyone could exploit him and just give him orders, and if he felt that programmed loyalty, he would do it. It's an interesting point. I mean, it's true. Ty is very conscious of of that and is considerate of that, so it goes out of his way to remind hell that he has choices.
0: Right, and I I just think that's one of the things that really... don't know to me that was a really important part that that brotherhood that the two of them share I think it got started in the ACAS maybe but it really doesn't happen until they start working on the on the Loshad together that's their ship and when when they do I think that Hal starts realizing that hey he really cares about me and people don't normally do that and so that makes Hal even more devoted to 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 making sure that he doesn't screw it up. And so he's really conscious of that, even though he does make a lot of mistakes because he just doesn't have those same skills that most humans do, that most natural born do.
1: You mentioned Vivi, so why don't we talk about her just for a moment, because we haven't talked that much about some of the other characters. So Vivian, I guess Vivian Valjean is hells eventually, uh not to ruin anything, but you, you mentioned it too, uh his his love yeah, interest. I did. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. That's fine. No, I mean, it was written in the stars as soon as they meet, you sense that something might happen. So we're not going to say what right. happens, but there's definitely a curiosity there that that emerges on both sides. <laughs> so my first question would be why did you give her the very, I guess, Le Misérables last name of Valjean?
0: came to me. I, I really just, I wanted her nickname to be Vivi for two reasons, because she's Vivian, but also she her initials are VV. So I don't know, when I was trying to think of a last name that started with V, that's what popped in my head. Sometimes I, I look online and look at like naming sites with names and stuff like that, but actually for Ty and Hal and Vivi, they just kind of came to me.
1: Great. Yeah, I thought maybe there'd be some story <laughs> of some embedded Les Miserables Subplot or some such thing.
0: I I, I just, I didn't think of that. But, you know, now that you say that, (laughs) you know, that maybe, maybe I heard that name one time and just decided to use it. I don't know. It just, it just kind of came to me.
1: Well, I love that. I love that, that it was just, you know, you just picked it because I know you are an English teacher, and I, as someone who was once a student in English, you know, where the teacher would go, let's talk about the symbolism, and what does this name mean, and you started reading all these things in it, and I could definitely see if someone was teaching this class that they would weave Jean Valjean into the, like, you know, how the parallels between Vivian and Jean Valjean, and and then they someone would unearth this interview, and you would go, nope. I just, I like the sound of it. So I love that. I love that.
0: I just, I can't say that I had a grand scheme there, but maybe I should have. Now no. I'm going to feel like.
1: No, it's unconscious. <laughs> if it was the scheme was there and you just, you, you, it, it was there and you just didn't, um it wasn't in the foreground of your mind. So.
0: Well, you know, a lot of things, I, I believe a lot of things happen subconsciously when writers are writing because. I will notice, like, things will link up that I did not plan to link up, but they link up in the book. And I'll I'll say, well, I didn't plan that subplot to go like that, but it worked really well, you know. So sometimes I wonder if maybe your brain is not working on things at a lower level that you're not as aware of, and maybe there is some symbolism there.
1: I yeah yeah absolutely I agree that's <laughs> the same with my writing too I'm like whoa oh wow oh this fits oh I set that up oh this go yeah totally I totally right? get that yeah a hundred percent so all right
0: and I'm a total I'm a total pantser so it just comes it requires me to do more editing to write that way but that's just how I that's how I am so. Uh, maybe it's, I don't know. I just sort of feel like sometimes it works out.
1: Right. A pantser meeting by the seat of your pants. That's I, That's a term. Just for people who may not be familiar with that, that you're, oh, you know, that, yeah. that's like a writing. Some writers are pantsers and, and you're a pantser. You just kind of write as you go and you figure out the story as you go
0: right and then some are planners or plotters and they they plot out every movement and and i i admire that so much i, I just can't i can't do it if i do it i won't use it and it's a bunch of wasted of time
1: yeah for me I, right? I relate to that yeah i i'm 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 more pantser myself but then i find in the middle of putting on the pants i i need to do a little plotting <laughs> like going oh it doesn't quite fit uh, let me let me just think through the next couple scenes so combination of both, right. but I'm I'm more pantser too. Well, so just a little more about Vivi. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to overcome in being drawn to hell. One of the biggest things is, as we've said, he's, he's destined to die young. So I wonder uh, if you can talk a little bit about what's going through her mind that allows her to be accepting of this person who has blackouts and who can go from being perfectly calm to getting the rush and beating someone to a pulp at the slightest provocation. <laughs>
0: Right. A lot of people might think, oh, well, Vivi kind of came from, you know, cuz at the beginning of the book, she's she's kind of getting away from a boyfriend who was who was violent and abusive with her. And so I, I know it's it's tempting to think, oh, she's jumping back into the same relationship, but not really because of course how once he saves her that first time, it's almost like you're in now, you know, like like I'm. He'll fight for her no matter what, and keep her safe. So I think she maybe kind of senses that, but it is a, it is a tough time in the book when she does finally realize that that soldiers die young because she did not really know that she was not aware that that the adrenaline fatigue kind of breaks their bodies down, and if they don't die by doing something stupid on the edge, they die because their body just squares out and that's really tough for her I think and that's one of my favorite scenes in the book and and it to me it just it just shows that, that she she is mature enough to see that this is all the time he has and so she makes that decision to be with him anyway
1: So let's talk about space opera more generally. Okay. What do you like about writing space opera?
0: Well, you know, basically I, when I was a kid, Star Wars came out and that was really big for all of us in, in the, I guess in the 70s and 80s when I grew up and I just always loved those stories I mean, so much so that I had the soundtrack to Star Wars and we would put it on the portable cassette player and play out Star Wars in the yard And so when I was a kid, I have really good memories of space opera. And it seemed to always be the space opera stories that caught my heart. It's the good fighting against evil, the hero's journey. Those types of things are just what always just got me. Like, I don't know. I'm very nostalgic, I guess. And I'm very into sci-fi pop culture type things. And I just wanted to write a book that was as much fun as playing Star Wars was when I was a kid. Just wanted to kind of capture that. And I hope I hope I did, and I hope people enjoy it, but that's just what always made, you know, space opera so much fun, the, you know, epic scale and the fight of good versus evil and the journey of the hero to become fully realized as a hero. I, I, I don't know. I just I just love that. And I love hard sci-fi, too, in some ways, but somehow the characters always do it for me more than anything else, I believe. I mean, I... It's the journey of the characters that I'm always invested in. And the science is not – it's important, but for me the characters are the most important. So I guess that's why I may fall more on the on the space opera side. And also, you know, I kind of grew up with that as a kid. My dad was a huge science fiction fan and we we had books around as a kid you know when i was a kid we had these stacks of like 70s pulp 60s 50s 60s and 70s paperbacks and just i grew up reading all of those and 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 i just i don't know it just became a thing for me and i i just i've never i guess I you know space opera is my favorite out of all the sci-fi genres
1: and subgenres. I had that album too. I love that album. I wore it down and those are the days when they were record players and you listen to that that soundtrack. It's funny, you know, space opera makes traveling in space seem so easy and so romantic and so (laughs) fun is it ever going to really be the movie style spaceships and like in the Russia's Edge where you can kind of just walk around and you do what you want, and you go to your bedroom? And or is it I just imagine being in these tiny little compartments and not being able to move and because, you know, the, the weight matters and the cost of the fuel right. and the uh, I, I just so I guess to turn this into a question, do you think space travel is ever going to be as fun as it's portrayed in space opera?
0: I don't think I don't think so, from what I mean from the little that I know of of physics, which is not much at all, but it seems like when you watch a show that like the expanse, for example, that is very, very scientific in a lot of ways with how they portray space travel and how the ships move in space and i i I think it's probably going to be more like that than it will Star Wars or any space opera that that's out there but I, I, I just don't think I, I hope we'll get there one day but I'm not sure
1: yeah but even in know. The Expanse they have these big space stations where it just seems like you're in Florida or something that's I, true yeah.
0: that's true, that's true, I was thinking like the acceleration and, and all, all the things they go through actually in space flight but yeah you're right I mean it is kind of on the space stations it is kind of like you could be on a planet somewhere, you know, and there's no... Yeah,
1: it's like a big shopping mall.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I mean, I, I would hope it would be, but I, I think hard sci-fi gives us what it probably will be like. You know, harder sci-fi kind of kinda shows us what it really will be like. But I guess space opera is kind of the idealized, this is what we wish it was like.
1: Well, so let's talk about, uh, if you're up for it, talking about your journey to publication. I I think it's a great story. How how did the book end up getting published? Because it it wasn't the most traditional route.
0: Yeah, this is a really cool story. So when I read The Rush's Edge, I kind of read it because my husband was asking me to write something. He said, write something original because, you know, I had played around in fanfic. I think lots of writers do. And he said, you need to write something original. And I said, fine, I'll write you a book. And so about, I guess it was the early part of 2019, I wrote it. I started at Christmas cause, because we were out of school for break and wrote it until probably March and then did some editing. And then I started querying agents and got turned down and turned down again and turned down again because that's the way it goes. Sometimes your query letter's not. Not where it should be, you know, or those first twenty pages need to be a little better, so during the whole time, I was rewriting and trying to make that that query letter the best it could be, and those first those opening pages the best they could be, and uh, then I saw that Angry Robot had an open submission period, and also another e publisher they they had an open submission period as well. And so I submitted to both about the same time. And I said, you know, I've been trying agents, that hasn't worked. I said, Well, what have I got to lose? Let let's give it a shot and so um and so I submitted to Angry Robot probably in May. I think their open submission was in May that at that time. And then I waited all summer and I said, wow, it would be great if I got Angry Robot. They liked it, but that's probably not going to happen. So I queried a few more agents here and there. And then they offered in September. And the cool thing was a few days before, the e-publisher called me and offered me a contract. And then the very next day, Angry Robot called and wanted to talk. And so I'm like, wow, you know, all this time with nothing, and then now here I have two of them that are that are interested. And of course, I, I just love Angry Robot because they're so out of the box and and just so they just seem like they were on the cutting edge of sci-fi, and and I, I just adored that. So I said yes, of course, you know, I had to I had to go with Angry Robot, and they were just the best team. Um, Gemma. Creffield was my editor, and she did a really great job helping walk me through edits and, and what all that entails. And they allowed me to have time to find an agent, which was really nice. That they, that they they said, hey, you know, we're not in that much of a hurry. See if you can find an agent to help you look over the contract. And so that's when I found my agent, Amanda Rutter, and she's with at the Literary Agency right now. And uh, she helped walk me through that process, and I I guess we kind of knew by late November things were all kind of signed and and good to go, and it was just really exciting. I I didn't know, I didn't think it would happen, but I thought, well, you know, I'm going to give it the best shot I can give it, and it actually worked out.
1: Yeah, it's so cool. It's so I mean, it's fairly unusual that a big publisher that publishes a lot of books every year like Angry Robot would have a period where they accept unagented manuscripts. So it's very cool that you, you got to kind of just jump over the that, I, I want to say barrier. It's not really a barrier. I mean, it's just part of the, the system, but you sort of took a different way through the system to get the book published.
0: Right, and you know they they I think they had six hundred submissions that time, and I got chosen and Chris Paneteer, who wrote the full Bottomist, was also chosen from the same submission period, and uh you know his book is is so good, it's just really great and so we kind of got to talking because we both came through the same open submissions period, and you know it it's it was exciting for both of us I think to. To, to to jump over the hoops that way I wasn't expecting it but I thought hey I don't have anything to lose you know
1: yeah it's great and Chris has been a guest too I mean that's and I guess I know you both through the through the network of the <laughs> angry robot writer friends so right. which is a very nice a nice group of people so let me ask you I it's funny I had this thought but I don't it's not Talk about scientific or not scientific, but I was thinking of just from my own experience when I'm interviewing writers and where they are and where they live. I was thinking it's not often that I'm calling science fiction writers who live in the American South. I mean, I can think of some people, but is that true? I mean, is it true that there aren't that many science fiction writers in the South or like a lot of the cons and stuff are in the North and on the West Coast? And so does that sound right? Did I just make that up?
0: think the big con that we have in the south is dragon con in atlanta that's that's a really big one every every year but that's probably the biggest one in this area um i think there's a con in north carolina called heroes con i don't know if they've done anything recently because you know covid and all the like but those are the two big ones that i know of and there are smaller ones you know there are smaller like comic cons and there's Joe Lanta, which is a GI Joe convention, but they pretty much have comic books and figures and you know all that pop culture stuff, all that really cool pop culture stuff there. So there are some, but yeah, the big ones I think you know are in the bigger cities, probably you know out west and and up north. And but but I don't, as far as southern writers, I mean, I know Chris is from from Texas and. You know, I know a couple of people here and there that I've heard of, but but I don't know. It might not be as many in the South. It's possible.
1: Although the South is famous for having some of America's greatest writers, so it's an interesting <laughs> conundrum.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I'm just kind of getting into this thing and, and getting to know people and. I came at the writing thing, I guess, a little differently than everybody else, and and so I guess I know more about the comic book side of conventions and the and the toy side of conventions, and not as much about the writer side. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that and and learning a lot more about who's 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 down here and you know um, who who we can power with. But I haven't I haven't heard as many people here as in other places. So you may be right about that.
1: And you still working as a, an English teacher, a high school English teacher? I wonder what your students think of having their English teacher as also the author of a science fiction novel.
0: That's kind of interesting. They they know because a lot of these these emails came through like at my lunch period, and I would be checking, and then the kids would come in like the day Angry Robot sent me the send me the that they wanted to meet. I got that email as my kids were coming in the room and I was going to put my phone away because, you know, you can't have your phone out during class. But um, I, when I found that out, I was about to burst. So they kind of went through the, you know, they kind of knew about what was going on with the book as, as it happened. And sometimes they'll ask me like, like, getting those checks, Miss Smith. And I'm like, well, it's not as much as you think. <laughs> really. I, I, I would, you know, it'd be great to be famous and be able to write full time. But, you know, I know that takes time and 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 you know, a touch of luck and being in the right place at the right time. And so, I, I definitely split my time between teaching and writing and and I think I think it works for me. But yeah, they're pretty excited. One of my kids went on went on Google Books and put a review and said my favorite English teacher. That was her book review.
1: <laughs> sweet. Oh, that's sweet.
0: I was like, oh, you know, but but I guess they, you know, they're kind of focused on other things. But I think they think it's kind of cool.
1: Well, so what's next for you? What's the next thing you'd like to to get out into the world?
0: Well, you know, I'm always interested in. You know, The Rest of the Edge was kind of written so it could stand alone, but there, you know, there's definitely more to Hal's journey as he really figures out what it means to be a hero and what it means to be truly human. And I'd love to tell more of his story. I really, really would. But right now I'm working on something that's kind of a, I guess it would be more of like a horror, kind of an urban horror, kind of creepy novel. And I don't want to say too much because it's really in the really, really early stages. But I'm going to try something different. And in the meantime, while we're waiting to see how The Rush's Edge does, and, and, and hopefully, if I get to tell more of, of Hal's story.
1: Well, sounds fantastic, horror. <laughs> so, I have been talking to Ginger Smith, author of The Rush's Edge, which came out last year from Angry Robot. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This was great.
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe or give the show five stars if you're feeling generous. It would be very much appreciated. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf. I edit the show. And the show gets to you thanks to the hard work of the folks at the New Books Network led by masterful editor, boss person Marshall Poe and hardworking nose to the grindstone co-editor person Leanne Wilson. Take care of yourself and your loved ones and take care of your books until next time.